Today, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2 in your, in your Bible, Acts 2. I apologize for all these people over here. They're in the middle of evidently an air conditioner uh, drainage line that stopped up and it decided to drain in our sanctuary. So uh, we'll fix that this afternoon or tomorrow. Uh, and so I apologize for that. Uh, Acts chapter 2. I want to talk to you today about the importance, really the power and the importance of Pentecost. Today, whether you realize it or not, is Pentecost Sunday. All over the nation and around the world, people celebrate Pentecost. Everyone say Pentecost. And for us today, I want us to read Acts chapter 2, uh, the first four verses. But I'm going to give you a bigger perspective of Pentecost and some things maybe you uh, did not know that uh, can help you, even from an Old Testament perspective, link the plan of God together for all of us in a greater way. With that in mind, let's pray together, and let's ask the Lord to speak to us this morning on Pentecost Sunday. Father, we thank you for the Word of God that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. May today, on Pentecost Sunday, your word ignite in our heart and explode in our spirits and cause us to find ourselves at the same place the first century church was with an outpouring of your Holy Spirit power and anointing in our lives. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Turn in your Bible to Acts 2, the first four verses, the day of Pentecost. It says this, when the day, in fact, I don't know if you can even read that. It's kind of small. I made it, but here we go. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And everyone said, Amen. That's when the church, as we know, was born. Kind of put it in context. If you remember, Jesus Christ was crucified. And then he rose again. Somebody say, Amen. He rose again. And then 50 days later is Pentecost. So that'll give you a little context of when the church was born. In fact, what did Jesus say to the disciples? He told them, he said, uh, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. The resurrected Christ in Acts chapter 1, the first two or three verses, it says he appeared to them, the resurrected Christ, for a period of 40 days teaching them and ministering to them the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And then he ascended to the Father. And then we find uh, the, these uh, 120 disciples, followers of Christ, who are in Jerusalem in what is called uh, by many the upper room. Uh, now, I've been to Jerusalem. I've been to what the upper room, and it's just the traditional site. There's no, there's no proof that that's where the uh, the Holy Spirit was poured out, uh, but they're in the upper room, they're praying, and suddenly, somebody say suddenly. Now, what was suddenly to them was not suddenly to God. God had a plan, as we'll see that. Uh, and so that's the context, and Pentecost in that day was the birthday of the church. But before that, the Jews, the day of Pentecost had a different kind of significance. 
But as we'll see today, what the, what God put in, in place back when he, uh, shared the law and the festivals and the feasts with the children of Israel and things they were to do, that God had a plan. Tell somebody, God always has a plan. He always has a plan. Now, Pentecost to the Jewish people is a celebration of, I don't even know, I, I, I Googled this to try to figure out how to say it. Shavu. I can't say it. You Google it. There's all kinds of ways that to say it. It's the feast of weeks. It's when the first fruits of the grain harvest are dedicated to the Lord. And so you, you can see that in Le- Leviticus 23, 15. It's right after Passover and, and it's a celebration. It's a feast celebrating the, the first fruits harvest. And you can read about it in Leviticus 23 and other passages. And here would be a great study of which I don't have time in this context, uh, to do, but there's a lot of insight, uh, uh, linking, uh, the feast of weeks or Pentecost. Uh, to the, the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost, the, uh, the Spirit of God falling. And so there's a great insight to that that you could, you would do well to, to study. In fact, Pentecost means 50 or 50th. And where they get that is from the instruction in Leviticus 23, after Passover, after a couple of things, you count off 50 days basically, or seven weeks, uh, and then that's when this feast begins. And so you can read about it and study it, Leviticus 23. And when the Spirit of God fell, it was the day of the Feast of Weeks, when they were celebrating the first fruits of the grain harvest and are dedicating them to God. How many of you got that much? Say, I got it, Pastor. That was what was going on when this was going on. There was a lot going on outside the upper room when these disciples, rather than celebrating the Feast of Weeks as they may have done as Jews, uh, they were praying and seeking God and waiting on the promise of the Father. And it's very important for you to realize when the day of Pentecost was fully come, there was, they were all with one accord in one place and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing wind from heaven uh, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And so the power of the Holy Spirit fell on Pentecost and everybody said amen. Now I want to break it down for you just for some thoughts today. The place. Where were they on the day of Pentecost? They were in where? They were in the upper room, but they were in Jerusalem. Everyone say Jerusalem. I've been to Jerusalem. I would encourage you to go to Jerusalem. If you ever get a chance to go on a tour of Israel, go on a tour from Israel. Beverly, it's well worth your time, energy, money, and effort. And maybe one day we could all just go together. Uh, I would love to do that. But Jerusalem, the place, it's at, in fact, that's what, what did Jesus say? Uh, the resurrected Christ just before he ascended. He said, verse four, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from 
from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. He said, don't leave Jerusalem. Some of them could have left because they had come just for celebration times and, and, and other reasons. He said, don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father. Jesus said that because Jerusalem holds a place of great significance and extreme biblical importance in God's plan and purpose being fulfilled. Uh, not only in that day, but in this day, as we'll see. Let me just build a foundation for you this morning. Jerusalem was originally called Salem. You can see Jerusalem. You see that. It was called Salem. In fact, in Psalm 76 verse 2, the psalmist says, in Salem also is your tabernacle. So, in fact, and even in King James, I think it says Jerusalem. I know for sure the new King James. In Jerusalem is your tabernacle, but it was originally called Salem. Now, let me just give you a little more insight about this place called Salem. If you were to go to Genesis 14, verse 18, we are introduced to a very unusual and unique character by the name of Melchizedek. Everyone say Melchizedek. Melchizedek, he he was called the king of Salem. And when Abram came in contact with this king of Salem, he was so uh, overwhelmed and so uh, inspired and so moved by, I guess, the ministry and the interaction with this uh, Melchizedek, king of Salem, that the Bible says he gave him a tenth of all he had. Uh, Abram tithed to the king of Salem who is, was from, uh, or king of Salem by the name of Melchizedek. Say Melchizedek. Now, yeah, you just got to look at this on your own. This is an interesting insight. If you were to go to Hebrews 7, you just write it down. You can look at it later. He, he goes back and refers to this king of Salem, uh, 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 who was Melchizedek. And he reaffirms what happened there with Abram or Abraham. Many theologians believe and it certainly is in line with uh, credibility thought that Melchizedek was a, a an, an, an basically an in uh, there's a biblical word for it a manifestation of Jesus in the Old Testament that Jesus showed up in Salem which is Jerusalem in the early days of Abram's life and ministered to him by the by the, the 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 code name if you will Melchizedek king of Salem that's just an interesting insight and that's it was evidently important to God to bring that to our attention not only in Genesis 15 but in uh, Hebrews chapter 7 so interesting little thought that Jerusalem very possibly was visited by Jesus and 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 inhabited by a manifestation of the Son of God back in Genesis 15 and interacted with uh, Abram to the point that Abram was so Im- impacted that he began to tithe to him. Now, that's a point of great study and insight that you ought to uh, tackle a little later. Jerusalem, the place where the, pen- the outpouring of the Holy Spirit came, was also the place where God instructed Abraham years later to offer up his son Isaac. 
Now, this is where it really begins to get interesting about Jerusalem and about the importance and the, and, and, and the significance of this place called Jerusalem. You know the story in Genesis 22 where God tested Abram's, or now Abraham's faith, and he said, go to the mountain and take your son with you and take, take sticks and stones and things to build an altar, an altar and offer your son as a sacrifice unto me. And the Bible says that Abraham did that. He went through without a question. In fact, Hebrews 12, the faith chapter, says that Abraham was so confident in the promise of God over Isaac that God would make his seed as the sea, the sands of the seashore and the stars of the heaven, that he knew that if he obeyed God and was obedient to God and offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice, that God, because of God's uh, original promise over Isaac, that God would have to raise him from the dead. Now, how many of you know that's a, that's a marvelous picture of the future? It's a marvelous picture of a later sacrifice. And it's a marvelous picture of what is required of all of us to be beneficiaries of God's ultimate sacrifice. It's called faith. Somebody say faith. That happened on the mountain where... Jerusalem is now built. Now, fast forward from that point. Almost a thousand years later, David, you can read about this in 2 Samuel 24. David sinned against the Lord and he, and he had, he, he, called for a census of the land. I'm, I've not studied this out to know why it was such a terrible thing, but God didn't want him to number the people and he numbered the people and God, the judgment of God came upon David. And, and in fact, the prophet gave David, uh, God spoke through the prophet, I think his name's Gad, uh, some options. He said, some options, you could, you could choose your punishment. Uh, and David said, I, man, I just offer myself on the mercy of God. Long story short, in a matter of days, thousands of Israelites lost their lives under the judgment of God. And David wanted and needed to offer sacrifice to curb, if you will, or stop the judgment of God. Long story short, he, uh, Gad said, you need to go to the mountain. And uh, there is a man there by the name of, I think his name is Arana. Uh, I can't spell it. He has a threshing floor. Somebody say threshing floor. You know what a threshing floor is. It's where they thresh the wheat. It's a place for where you you handle the harvest. You go and you and you tell. I think his name was Jehu, someone who Arana and the there was the prophet Jehu told him this. I think, and he said, "You go purchase it, build it." No, he said, "You go get it, build an." altar and offer a sacrifice to God. David said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take the man's land. I'll not, uh, and the, and Arana said, here, I'll just give it to you. He said, no, I'm not going to take it. I'll purchase it. He purchased this threshing floor, built an altar, offered a sacrifice and the judgment of God was stayed and the forgiveness of God came and, 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 uh, uh, there was no more judgment on the people. That's the place that is now called Jerusalem. Now that's significant. Everybody say the threshing floor. 
And then you fast forward, David couldn't build the temple because of his lifestyle. And so God said, you give over and you're at your deathbed. He turned that responsibility over his, over to his son. His son's name was what? Solomon. Everyone say Solomon. And there on the threshing floor, God by the, uh, gave instructions to Solomon and Solomon built the temple. Now it's getting very significant. This is the place where the Holy Spirit was poured out, the place of the temple. And even today, it's called the Temple Mount. It's a place of great significance. It's also a place of great uh, 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 disagreement and, and global uh, concern because of the the Jews and the uh, the Arabs and all of those. They want to lay claim to it. It's a it's a it's a place of great tension today and a great focal point still today. It's the Temple Mount, Beverly, and I've been there. There have been two temples built there, and some believe a third temple will be rebuilt there on that site before Jesus comes back. The Temple Mount, Jerusalem, the place of the temple where the temple is born. And then you fast forward into the life of Jesus. Christmas time came. Jesus was born. And where was he born? Not in Jerusalem, but in... Come on, say it out loud. He was born in... Bethlehem, but you know the story. Jesus, uh, uh, parents, Joseph and Mary took him, brought him back to where? Jerusalem, to the temple. And he, in, they entered the temple basically to dedicate Jesus to the Lord. You can read about it in Luke 19, 28. And I think it was Simeon said, man, I've been praying for this day. God promised me I'd see the salvation of Israel. Here he is. And he blessed him and he prayed for him and he blessed Jesus. That was at the place in the temple. And then you fast forward 33 years later. It's the place of Jesus' persecution and punishment. If you were to go to John 19, you could read about the place of the pavement where Jesus was judged and where he was beaten and where they basically cast lots for his clothes. You remember that. The, the soldiers, they were going to cut it all up. And they said, no, let's don't cut it up. Let's, let's uh, cast lots for it. It's the place called the pavement. You can go there today and written in that original area called the place of the pavement. Gabatha, I think is the Greek word. Uh, you can see actual games and things scrolled or, or, or scarred into the pavement where the Roman soldiers and others used to play games and to cast lots. It's the place of the pavement. Jerusalem was the place not only of Jesus' persecution and punishment, but his crucifixion and resurrection. Just outside the city walls at the place called the place of the skull, Golgotha. He was crucified and then he was buried in a borrowed tomb and he rose again. That's all happened around Jerusalem from really the beginning of time and God's plan through Abraham. Now we see Jesus. He comes into, in fact, Jerusalem. He rode through the gate called beautiful, the golden gate from the Mount of Olives on a donkey and came in in the triumphant entry. And then he was beaten and battered and bruised and scarred at the place called the pavement. And then he was crucified just outside the city walls. And he rose again. And then 50 days later, the church is born. 
That's called the day of what? Pentecost. This place called Jerusalem has great significance and biblical importance for all of us, not only then, but even today, because guess what? Jerusalem is the place of of Jesus' eventual return to planet Earth. What did the angel tell the disciples when Jesus arose, when Jesus ascended to the Father in Acts chapter one? The angel said, why stand you gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who came in like manner, he will, who's leaving in like manner, will come again one day. In other words, he's coming back. And, and that happened actually on the Mount of Olives, which is just across the Kidron Valley from the temple. And so you can see from here to there. And I can, man, oh man. What a sight. They're standing on the Mount of Olives. There's the temple over there where Jesus was dedicated. The temple where, oh, let me just backtrack right over where, uh, 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 Jesus was dedicated, the temple that Solomon made, the place where David bought the threshing floor, the place uh, uh, in Salem where Melchizedek uh, came, the king of Salem, and interacted with Abraham years before. Now here's these 120 disciples. They're looking at Jesus. He's ascending to the Father. They see him ascending. There's the temple, and the angels show up and say, hey, hey, don't. Hey, why stand you gazing? He's coming back. Everybody say he's coming back. In fact, the prophet Zechariah says this. In Zechariah 14, he says there will come a day when basically Jesus comes back and his feet will touch the Mount of Olives and they will split in two. It'll split in two. And according to some other prophecies and people's interpretation of prophecy, the resurrected Christ will walk down through the Kidron Valley and walk through the gate beautiful, which by the way is sealed by a prophetic declaration in scripture. It's sealed, the gate beautiful or the golden gate and walk through there and the millennial reign will begin. That's just, uh, you put a lot of prophetic pieces together and you see that Jerusalem, the place of the birth of the church, which let me just stop and say, all of us are still in the age of the church. What happened there on Pentecost Sunday, if you will, on on the day of Pentecost over 2,000 years ago, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the church being birthed, the purpose of God for the church being birthed, we are still in that age. Are you with me? And so everything that God did for that first century church, he wants to do for us. He's coming back to planet earth. And so Jerusalem, the place, significantly important. Why? Because God had a plan. God's not haphazard in his plan. Everyone say the plan. He had a place and he had a plan. You see, if you go back to this Acts 2, it says when the day of Pentecost was fully come. I believe the writer, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Dr. Luke, by the way, who wrote the book of Acts, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wanted us to know that the birthday of the church, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, happened on the day of Pentecost. It was significant. It was not accidental. It was on purpose. It was God's timing for his plan of God to unfold. The Feast of Weeks, which is a place for harvest celebration. And what happened? 
at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out. Jesus, uh, Jesus baptized the church in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is poured out. The disciples go out into the streets. Peter gets up and preaches. And 3,000 people are born again at the threshing floor, the place of harvest. You see, years ago, when God instituted the Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, he had in mind not the harvest of wheat for the purpose of bread, but the harvest of souls for the purpose of God's kingdom coming and his will being done. Somebody say amen. It was the place of harvest. It was a place of great significance for God's plan to unfold. In fact, what did Peter do when he first got up? He got up and he didn't, he wasn't uh, uh, out of sorts. He wasn't un, uh, misunderstood, not able to be understood under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. He begins to preach the gospel. And the first thing he does is quote Joel chapter two, which is a prophecy about the day of Pentecost when the spirit of God is poured out. You see, God had a plan, always had a plan. The the scripture in the Bible, it's not just haphazard misplaced stories. It's God's plan unfolding for his kingdom purposes. And Pentecost had great significance. He preaches and he says, Hey, it shall come to pass. In the last days, everybody say last days. You see this day, the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God was poured out, it began, God turned the hourglass over and began the undetermined amount of time called the last days. In fact, in Daniel, when you read the, about the 70 weeks, there's, there's, uh, 70 sets of seven and the last between the, the, uh, the last set of seven and the other sets of seven, there is a gap that's like God stops. Okay. And he grabs the time clock and he says, we're going to stop while the church does her business. And no one knows. Jesus said, nobody knows the day. We're still in the age of the church. We're still, God's purpose and plan for the church is still very much alive. And we have to carry that mantle and that responsibility. That's why Pentecost is so important. Because Pentecost was what God looked as was necessary for us as his people to fulfill his kingdom purpose. Let me just talk to you. We've talked about the place, Jerusalem. We've talked about God's plan. It was all in God's plan, Pentecost. Number three, let's talk about the people of Pentecost. These people, it says there, they were all and the Holy Spirit fell upon them all. How many of you know that never really ever happens in today's culture? It's a little spattering here, a little spattering there. I, I've never been, even though I've been in some pretty powerful uh, uh, church services where the Holy Spirit showed up in a powerful way. I've been in some meetings where people all over the place were getting filled with the Holy Spirit, but I've never been in a place where everybody there was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So there's something very unique about these people, and we can learn something from these people of Pentecost. And let me just give you some thoughts today, just uh, just simple thoughts. Number one, they were all followers of Jesus. They had all sold out, if you will. 
And they all were following him. They were obedient to him. They had yielded to the word of God. And when he said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the father, they were following his command. Listen, understand, we could stop right now. If you want a fresh Pentecostal experience, we got to go back to the foundations of our faith and just ensure that our life has been focused in on, on the priority of following him. And obeying his word and will in our life. They were followers of Jesus. But John 15 says they were friends with Jesus. He said, I no longer call you servants. I'm calling you my friends. These were friends and even family of Jesus Christ. They walked with him. They lived with him. They ate with him. They laughed with him. They cried with him. uh, And they were his friends. And if you read John 17, where he prayed for them, he was praying for his dear friends. In fact, Jesus had the 12. He had the 70, but he had the 12, and then he had the three, and then he had a best friend. Did you know Jesus had a best friend? It doesn't mean he didn't love everybody the same, but he had close relationship. Who was his best friend? was John. But these people there at Pentecost, they were followers of Jesus. They were friends of Jesus. And both of those put them to the place where they were faithful to the call of God that Jesus or the, that Jesus had put upon them. These are the people of Pentecost. They were not the elites. They were not the, 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 the religious. They were simply followers of Christ, friends of Jesus and faithful to the ministry of Jesus. I say it another way. They were people of surrender. We said, we sang today, I surrender. These Pentecostal people were people of surrender. Now, when we think of Pentecostal people, we think of something different, don't we? Because we have some religious understanding of Pentecostal. You ever been to an old-line Pentecostal church? Uh, in fact, I've been to some that scared me. I mean, whoo, these people are, are pretty wild people. And so uh, that's what we tend to think about. That's what they thought about this church because they said, you, you guys are all drunk. So maybe this experience we've had uh, with Pentecostalism is not so far off because when the power of the Holy Spirit was first poured out, everybody that heard them and saw them says, we're drunk. You guys have been sipping back on grandpa's old cough medicine or something here. What's going on? They said, we're not drunk as you suppose. We're just filled with the Holy Ghost. And in all of that, they surrendered their lives. They surrendered their futures. They surrendered everything that they had unto him. They were people of surrender. Let me just say this about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You will never receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life if you are not absolutely surrendered to his purpose and plan for your life. Some people I've heard say this, because they get hung up on verse 4, where it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They get hung up on that, and they say, well, do I have to speak in tongues? Do I have to do, I don't know about that speaking in tongues. Do I have to do that? It's like God said, I'm going to give you everything I have. I want to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, I just don't want to, I don't know if I want it the way you want to give it to me. Can I pick and choose? My answer to that always is this. You don't have to speak in tongues. You get to. This is a gift. 
And any gift that God wants to give me, that the Holy Spirit wants to give me, I want to embrace the gift because it's not a bad gift. It's a good gift. And I'll talk about uh, the reason for all this in a moment. But these people had surrendered. They were people of surrender. They were also people of supplication. They were people who had learned through the life and the ministry of Jesus and his prayer life that they were to pray. Now, the instruction of Jesus when he left was go and wait. Everyone say go and wait. Just wait. He didn't say go pray. He just said wait. But I understand something about this, that they weren't just playing fiddlesticks. They weren't just uh, searching the internet and playing uh, uh, foosball. Uh, oh, that's a little after Jesus. They weren't uh, playing Minecraft or whatever. They were seeking God. Verse 14 of chapter 1, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Family and friends were gathered together. The family and friends of Jesus were gathered together waiting on the promise of the Father. They didn't know what to expect. So they were praying and in supplication. That was the habit of their life. In fact, even after the Holy Spirit falls in Acts 3, you see Peter and John were up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And if you fast forward a couple of chapters in chapter 4, when, when persecution began to hit the church, rather than freaking out, they gathered together and began to pray again. And they said, Lord, behold their threats. Grant that your bond servants with all boldness may speak your word. And they got another dose of the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were, they were baptized afresh in the spirit of boldness. And they began to speak the word of God with boldness. Why? Because they were people not only of surrender, but they were people of supplication. They knew the power of prayer in their lives. They communed with God. But they were also people of Scripture. All they had was the Old Testament. But man, they, they had linked in to the power of the Old Testament prophecy. In fact, if you look at Acts 1 verse 14, Peter stands up in verse uh, 14, 15. It says, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of the names were about 120 and said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before the mouth of David concerning Judas. So they had already began to realize that Judas, the betrayer, it was all a fulfilling of prophecy and that they had to replace him, And they went about the process of replacing him because of the mandate of Scripture upon their life. What's the first thing Peter does when he preaches? He quotes the Scripture. He, he quotes the Scripture three times. In fact, the majority from verse 14 to verse 39, uh, a very short uh, uh I'm sure it was maybe longer and wider than this, but Luke uh, recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we see Peter quoting uh, two slash three significant passages of Old Testament prophecy. He was a man of Scripture. These people understood the authority of the Word of God. Not like today where we all want to argue whether the, the, the Scripture is God's written authoritative Word. They embraced the word of God. They were people of surrender. 
They were people of supplication, these Pentecostal people. They were people of Scripture. They lived under the mandate of God's Word in their life. And that caused them to be people of significance. They had embraced the moment. They had embraced the prophetic time clock of God and realized that this was a historic spiritually significant time in the history and plan of God unfolding in their life. And they were a part of prophecy being fulfilled. And as I said earlier, understand this, the church of today is still right there with them. You see, this process beginning from even creation and through Abraham and all the way down through uh, David and then Solomon and and Jesus and all of this history that I condensed in just a, a small thought, all of that boiled down to God's plan unfolding when the church was born. And could I tell you today, regardless what people think around the world, the church is still as significant today as it was that day. The purpose of God for the church and the significance. And listen, uh, I've said this a hundred times over the years. I'll say it again. The church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. Could I tell you, in a a way we can understand, God put all his marbles into us. There's no plan B. When you bring it down even to you as a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ, he put his purpose and plan in for you. And there's no plan B. Now, uh, you say, well, hey, if I don't do what he wanted me to do, he'll raise up somebody else to do it. Come on now. Listen carefully. God has a plan and a purpose for all of us. We too should be people of Pentecost. People who are followers of Jesus, friends of Jesus, faithful to Jesus. <clears throat> People who have surrendered, people who are prayer warriors, people who embrace the totality of the word of God in their life and embrace the reality that we are people of great significance in God's purpose and plan unfolding in the earth. I've told you about the place. I've told you about the plan and the people. Now the purpose. And and, and we could talk about this for weeks, but I'm going to just very simply give you a twofold thought today. God's purpose unfolding for that day of Pentecost. Number one, it was to prepare us for ministry. When you look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit, if you go back and you read John 14, where Jesus promised the Holy Spirit coming, and John 16, and you read those things, and you read the epistles about the Holy Spirit's influence and impact and and, and ministry in the local church, uh, you could put a pretty big label pretty pretty easily on, on all of that and say the Holy Spirit influence in our life and in the disciples' life, even in that day, was to prepare them for ministry. Everyone say ministry. In fact, I saw something that I never really saw before. I read over it. If you go back to Acts 1, when Luke says this, the verse 1 and 2, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, catch this, 
through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Did you see what Luke did? Luke uh, uh, said basically this, that Jesus Christ, by way of the Holy Spirit, and in concert and harmony with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, began to prepare these disciples for ministry. Everybody say amen. Equip and prepare. And the second part, the second purpose, the of the twofold purpose is not just to prepare us for ministry, but of course, empower us for ministry. Because that's what Jesus said uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit is to come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and all to the ends of the earth. You'll have power to fulfill the commission of God. What was the commission of God before he ascended to the Father? Matthew 28. In fact, other gospels give us kind of different forms of it. It's called the Great Commission. He said this before he ascended to the Father. Uh, he said this, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What was he saying? What I have done for you, you do for the world. Go find people who are lost and without Christ. Preach the gospel. Raise up disciples. Reproduce after like kind. And oh, by the way, wait for the promise of the Father. Because without the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't fulfill the purpose. Everyone say, without the power, I can't fulfill God's purpose. See, Pentecost is, is absolutely essential for the church, for you, for me. The influence of the Holy Spirit in our life and being filled with the Spirit Paul told the Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You read through the book of Acts, you'll find that, that in, I think in five different places, uh, the outpouring and the baptism after this first, uh, initial outpouring and the church was birthed, people, the disciples and the Spirit of God began to move throughout the region, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, in the uttermost parts of the earth, people would get born again. And then the disciples under the inspiration of God wanted to ensure that they not only got born again, but they got baptized in the Holy Spirit for the purpose of preparation and equipping for ministry and then empowering for ministry. And then one more thing that is not on your notes. It's the promise. Jesus promised the disciples the Holy Spirit, and they received it in Acts chapter 2. 
But in Peter's preaching, as he concluded his message, catch this. This is the last words of his message that are recorded by Luke on that day. It says this, I'll begin in verse 38. It says, uh, let me just back up in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it wasn't just for those disciples and those people in the upper room. It was also for these new believers that had just been born again. And then verse 39, catch this promise. For the promise, he's talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is not to you and to your children. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all those who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. In other words, the promise of God, of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is not just for them, not just for the apostles, not just for that day, but for this day. Why? To equip us. Listen, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit of God is not just to get the monkey off your back. That's what happened at Calvary. Hello. Watch Pilgrim's Progress. Calvary will set you free. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which came upon the church was to equip them, gift them, grace them, guide them, direct them, teach them, remind them of the the Scripture, prepare them for ministry, and empower them for ministry. That's what the Pentecost is all about. And today is the day of Pentecost. Let me ask you this, and we're going to close. Are you a Pentecostal? I'm not talking about a denomination. I'm talking about a lifestyle. The disciples asked one, I think it was, uh, I forget which city, might have been in the Ephesians. I'd have to go back and read. He said, they said, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said, we don't know what you're talking about. We, we, we've not heard about this Holy Spirit. They prayed for them. The Holy Spirit came upon them. See, the disciples understood the importance and the power and the impact of not just being born again, but being empowered from on high. Let's stand together. Let's pray today that Pentecost would not be an event of Old Testament remembrance of just celebrating the harvest. Let's pray today that Pentecost would not just be the birthday of the church. Let's pray today that Pentecost would be the lifestyle of each and every one of us. Father, today we thank you that you didn't leave us comfortless. You told the disciples, I'm not going to leave you comfortless without help. I'm going to send you the helper the Holy Spirit who will help you and equip you and fellowship with you and be with you and empower you.
to do the work of ministry. Lord, today, we pray the power of the Holy Spirit would be made manifest in our midst today. Just as we stand together, let us be as those disciples, people of supplication, praying together for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I want to challenge each of you today to say this to God, Lord, I submit myself and I surrender to the outpouring and ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life. On Pentecost Sunday, may I have a Pentecostal experience. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We bless you. We praise you. Thank you, Jesus for your outpouring in our life. In Jesus' name. Lord, they were waiting, but they were praying. Lord, we wait for you today in our hearts and lives. May we be people of Pentecost people of surrender, people of, 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 of service to you, people of supplication, seeking you. We pray your kingdom would come, your will would be done in our lives, in our families. Now let's pray over our family because Peter said this, <clears throat> The outpouring is not only for us, but our children and our children's children. Lord, may our families be Pentecostal. May our fathers be Pentecostal. May our husbands be Pentecostal. May our children and our grandchildren be Pentecostal. May the power of the Holy Spirit come upon them. Lord, with great fervor and fire. Lord, even as the disciples that day had tongues of fire on their heads, may the fire of the Holy Spirit come upon us, Lord, and, and equip us and empower us again for service to fulfill your kingdom purpose in the earth, Lord Jesus, for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Hallelujah. Do this. Lift your hands and say, God, do it in me, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you today. Next Sunday. Oh, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you.